This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome to Literary Treks, episode number 253. This is your official Star Trek books and comics podcast here on the Trek FM network. I'm Bruce Gibson, just one of your hosts. And with me, with a haircut, is Dan Gunther. Dan, I bet you didn't notice I saw that you had a haircut there. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. I'm, I always have this thing where I let it go way too long in between haircuts and it just gets to be ridiculous. So, uh, yeah, I finally got a haircut and I'm about five pounds lighter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it looks good. I'm the same way. I, uh, sometimes go in and they look at the computer and they'll say something like, you know, oh, it's been a couple months since you've been here. Have you, you know, why has it been so long? I'm like, just cause I haven't gotten around to it. <laughs> <laughs> they did the exact same thing to me. Apparently it was 13 weeks in between haircuts for me. Wow. So it's about three months. Yeah. It's a, it's a little, yeah, it's not good. <laughs> I was getting <laughs> wow. a little shaggy. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll just refer to you as shaggy through today's episode. <laughs> <Ruh-ro>. <laughs> Oh, gee, Scoobs. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> Zoinks. <laughs> Rogray. So uh, before we go into some Scooby-Doo or even some animated series for Star Trek in our comics feature, <laughs> see that segue, just to mention that uh, we have our feature today. It's the third book of the Star Trek Prometheus series, and we have one of the authors on to talk about it. So I'm looking forward to that. What about you, Dan? Oh, yeah, this is really exciting. This has been a really fun trilogy, a really kind of unexpected gem in Treklet in the last year for me. So getting the chance to talk to one of the authors, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And I'm really looking forward to some great insights into how this whole trilogy came together. Me too. But before we get to that, let's look at Star Trek versus Transformers number three, comic issue number three. Now, we've reviewed the other two as they came out, and now we're going to do a quick review here of number three, where we have what is the Star Trek animated series blended together with the Transformers cartoon-type animated series visuals 
This one is just really all-out war compared to the other two. The other two are more set up, and now this is where the two different groups of Transformers and our Starfleet crew members are fighting all each other, and we have these poor miners on this planet running for safety because the bad guys are trying to shoot at them. Yeah, they're really, of course, uh, setting up the typical Federation and the Transformers, the Autobots defending the innocent people while we have the Klingons and the Decepticons kind of threatening. And I mean, right off the bat, they're just super evil. We have uh, one of the Decepticons telling Soundwave to record the sounds of the human screams so that he can listen to them again later. Like they're not pulling any punches here. They're definitely uh, really going for the bad guy angle. That's just sick. That's just sick on him <laughs> for one to record human screaming and pain and terror. Ah! But then down below ground, we have Kirk down there with our other good guy Transformers. I like calling them good guy and bad guy right now because <laughs> it sounds like, you know, this is how I would talk if I were a kid watching it, you know? Yeah, and absolutely. He's going to, um, he's setting, he, you know, he's staying in this little like archway transporter device looking thing. Uh, but I don't know. It's, it's just this thing that he stand that Kirk is standing in and they're hooking some cable wires to it. And they're like, are you sure that you can handle this? Because what they're going to do is tap into his mind and pull all this information for him so they could build an enterprise. Mm-hmm. Because according to Sulu, Kirk knows every rivet and fuse on board the enterprise. So from his memory, they can build an exact copy of the enterprise, which makes a pretty cool appearance later in the issue. You know, I wish Scotty wasn't above on the planet and he was below planet because that would have made more sense if it was Scotty. I don't picture yeah. Kirk knowing every rivet and nook and cranny of the Enterprise. I, I agree. I mean, Kirk is awesome. Let's, you know, give him credit. Star Trek always points out how amazing Kirk is. But yeah, this is a little bit of a stretch. I really think that's a good idea. It should have been Scotty in the in the device there. And then they would have looked into his mind and seen a Tribble, and that would have been fun, too. <laughs> totally. So we go back to the um, on, on the planet, on the surface of the planet, and the Decepticons are shooting at the miners and our crew and Optimus Prime are trying to keep them from getting everybody. And instead of shooting phasers, Spock steps up and he says, you know, we surrender on behalf of my companions, I surrender to you. And one of the Klingons says, I never thought I'd see the day. And of course, then as things are happening and it seems like all is lost, what happens? But the Enterprise comes crashing up through the ground, through the yep. ground of the planet. It comes up <laughs> from the ground, not from the sky. You Okay, if any of you thought that Into Darkness was bad with the Enterprise coming out of the ocean, this comes out of the ground. I was thinking the same thing. Like we've had, you know, in the first Star Trek 2009 film, it comes out of, you know, Jupiter's rings and then it comes out of the water. And now we've just got it smashing through solid rock and coming up from some subterranean passage here, uh, which, you know, don't get me wrong. This two page spread here of the Enterprise busting up through the ground is pretty cool especially how it dwarfs all the little tiny people on the surface, but not only them, but the big, huge transformers as well. It, it just absolutely dwarfs them and it looks pretty cool. It comes up phasers blazing. It's kind of gorgeous. It is. 
But it's not the only thing that comes out of the ground. We have like a jet plane and some cars and all these are transformers in their vehicle mode or whatever. And they're being driven by our different enterprise crew members. <laughs> yep. And my absolute favorite one on this next page is we all know Bumblebee. The transformer is a little yellow uh, Volkswagen Beetle looking car. And it's being driven by Mares, who's being bounced around quite a bit and kind of holding herself in the seat there. And I just love that image of this little yellow beetle coming up with Mares at the wheel. <laughs> it's a really cute image. It is. It is a cute image. Uh, and then we have in the skies above them, that enterprise that came crashing out of the ground. It start, starts shooting at a Klingon ship. And as we see this going on, we see that there's something happening to the Klingon ship. It's changing into something else, and it's Crypticon. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah, apparently it's, according to Spock, a highly illogical form for a Cybertronian to take. But uh, they're just going to go with it anyway, you know, to heck with Spock's logic. This is, you know, Trypticon has re returned and, and is, you know, breathing fire and, and stuff. Can you tell I don't know a lot about Transformers? It's, I mean, it's very impressive. It's a big T-Rex robot. Uh, yes, I yeah, cool. <laughs> no, you're doing good. I mean, I think I think we're I think we're kind of getting it with the Transformers now. I think yeah, we're, we're yeah. There. I think we can count ourselves Transformers experts after having read this series, right? Exactly. Pretty sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't at me. <laughs> and as this is going on, you know, we've got McCoy there going fantastic. Now we're stuck between a robot and a hard place. And then where the devil is Jim? Jim is on the bridge of the Enterprise that crashed through the ground. And he's in there with one of our uh, Transformers. I don't remember which guy this is, though. <laughs> but maybe Ratchet, I'm not I believe, is uh, his name. What is it? Ratchet. Ratchet. The, the one he's with there, yeah. Okay. But Kirk is tiny in a tiny captain's chair <laughs> because Ratchet has to stand on the bridge. So this is an extra large Enterprise. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's not only just a replica of the Enterprise, it's super big because uh, it's Cybertronian sized, as Ratchet says. So, you know, if there was a full bridge crew on the bridge sitting at their stations, they would all be, you know, the size of the Transformers. It's like it went from Prime Universe size Enterprise to Kelvin Universe size Enterprise. <laughs> oh, let's not open that whole debate. <laughs> <laughs> No, but everything is extra big. So, I mean, mm -hmm. if Kirk was going to go and push a button somewhere, he'd have to climb up onto a chair with a ladder and all that. That's just so you give, give you context that, you know, he looks really small in this extra big enterprise. And they start shooting at the T-Rex guy, you know, and <laughs> which, um, wait, what his name was? Uh, Trypticon. Trypticon. That's right. I'm <laughs> testing you because I forgot. And then... <laughs> <laughs> All this fighting's going on. The cars are going all over the place. Everything's going crazy. And then we see our crew. It looks like it's the end for them. Klingons have them trapped. They've got their, their phasers on them. And then all of a sudden, we see them beamed up along with one of our uh, female transformers. I don't remember her name either. But I think <laughs> RC. I could be wrong. Okay. <laughs> but now they're beamed onto the extra big big enterprise and Kirk is still connected. He's got like wires and stuff connected to his head. Cause that's how he's controlling the enterprise. They, you know, the crew down the, 
ground, couldn't believe. How could Kirk control the Enterprise? Well, how can one person control the Enterprise? You need at least 23 people. Well, with some jury rigging disguises, you could do it with five or six, which I think is trying to, what, voyage home? Or like, I, I was thinking, yeah, I referencing mean, uh, Search, Search for, for Spock. Spock. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, that's that's a deep cut there. I like that. (laughs) Yeah, I like that too. What has happened now is with it connected to Kirk's mind, he's controlling the ship. And what does the Enterprise start to do? What does it do? It is a big transformer. The Enterprise transforms into a transformer. Because of course it does. (laughs) So yeah, it transforms into this big, huge hulking transformer to kind of face down Trypticon. And apparently, you know, it's Kirk controlling this. So he has transformed it because he says, my crew, the miners, they need me. They need the power of Fortress Tiberius. (laughs) (laughs) This is amazing. (laughs) We're not making fun of this. We are loving this is what's going on here. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, <laughs> I might be making fun of it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but we're laughing about. I mean, it's supposed to be this way, you know. Oh, it's totally. not canon, so there you go. But it's, it's supposed to be like an fun. animated Saturday morning cartoon series when these shows were on. You know, the, a little yeah. bit ridiculous. I mean, we should get the giant Spock to come out and fight them too. That would be. Oh, great. there you go. The Doctor Caniculus uh, cloned version of Spock. <laughs> yeah. See, oh. I've watched the animated series. I know all about it. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah, that's this issue, and that's where it ends. They're getting ready to fight. To be continued, yeah. And we'll be reviewing it here on the show when it comes out. So, yeah, let's look for episode, I mean, not episode, for issue four when that comes out. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I enjoyed this. It's a lot of fun, I think. And, uh, again, it's just one of those things that partway through you kind of have to go, oh, yeah, right, and just turn off the like serious analytical Star Trek side of your brain and just go, I'm along for the ride. I'm just enjoying it. Yeah. And it's kind of cool to see Enterprise as a transformer. I never thought about that. (laughs) I can't say that I have either. (laughs) (laughs) Well, oh, well. So let's go to some listener feedback. Uh, Let's uh, hear what was said about episode number 251 which was titled five missions of elton john and uh let's go to the babel conference here and you know unfortunately for this one uh we only had one comment and uh this was the episode that we reviewed the book of the ikes gorkin series the one honored bound and justin ozer says there's actually an elton john song that i always thought included the phrase honor bound but it's actually alter bound. I thought the connection would have been perfect, but it's just another misheard lyric. Oh man, those misheard misheard lyrics. Uh, little known fact: Did you know that misheard lyrics are called mondegreens? No, I did not know that. Yeah, and it's it's from an old song, and it's commonly misheard as Lady Mondegreen, but the actual lyric is "and laid him on the green." So the technical word for a misheard song lyric is a mondegreen. That's that's fascinating. See, we got a little uh, trivia, some information here so we can win at Jeopardy someday. There you go. And some famous misheard lyrics, some famous mondegreens, of course, would be uh, there's a bathroom on the right. You know, that famous uh, uh, CCR song. Uh, and then um, one of my personal favorites is Elton John singing, hold me closer, Tony Danza. 
Yes, I have heard that. <laughs> well, and then one of my favorites is a song. Um, let's see. It's by uh, Electric Light Orchestra, Don't Bring Me Down. Hmm. And they do this thing where they say, don't bring me down. And everybody turns to me at any party and goes, Bruce. But he doesn't say Bruce. It's always <laughs> been uh, misheard as Bruce. And that's not really what he says. Oh, I love it. That's good. <laughs> but what he really says is Groose, G-R-O-O-S-S. It's a made up huh. word that they did. Okay. And it's like has something to do with like a German expression or whatever. We should ask our author who's coming on because he's in Germany. Maybe he knows what Groose is. <laughs> Absolutely. There we go. <laughs> I'll add that to the list of questions. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's interesting. Oh, but uh, by the way, going back to what Justin said, uh, the misheard lyric in the Elton John song, that comes from the song, Someone Saved My Life Tonight. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. And that's where it's alter bound. So I looked that up just so that we could sound smart on this episode. <laughs> Excellent. So, well, I say uh, I'm ready to go into the feature and uh, talk Prometheus. Yeah, me too. I'm really excited for this one. Let's uh, Let's meet on the other side of the page flip. In today's feature, we're going to review the third book in the Star Trek Prometheus series, In the Heart of Chaos. And we have one of the authors here, Christian Hamburg. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me. Hello. Excellent. Welcome to Literary Treks. We're really excited to have you aboard. I'm thrilled as well. So it's all good. Great. Well, one thing we want to do before we really start diving into this book is we're curious to know how you uh, got into Star Trek, how you became a fan. And with your co-author, Bound Palpolis, how did you guys just get into Star Trek and get to know each other and get on your Star Trek journey? Okay. So I guess the first time that I met Star Trek was when I was in elementary school age. I have very vivid memories of hiding behind my father's seat whenever the Klingons showed up on screen. (laughs) And that must have been reruns of the original series. And then in the late 80s, early 90s, when The Next Generation appeared on German screens, I was old enough to really know what was happening. And I was quite excited to see the new show because I liked the old one. And that's when my fandom started, I guess. And I have been a fan of Star Trek ever since. I am a regular guest at FatCon over here in Germany. I go every year. I host panels there. I present my books today at FatCon. And Bernd and myself, we met at university. We both studied here in Mainz, Germany, which is where I live right now, a small university town near Frankfurt. Frankfurt Airport might be of uh, relevance to some of you listeners. Um, That's where we met, and we soon realized that we were kind of the same in terms of interests and in terms of dream jobs. We both wanted to write. And so we started hanging out. We became friends and have been friends for the past 20-something years. Um, Star Trek, the Prometheus novels, uh, how did those happen? We were contacted by CrossCult. Uh, Crosscard being the German publisher of the Star Trek novels. Both Bernd and myself had been translating uh, the pocketbooks 
Star Trek novel series for CrossCult into German. And when, I think when uh, the movie Star Trek Into Darkness came to German cinemas, there was a meeting in Munich, I believe, for all German license holders of Star Trek. And the German publisher, CrossCult, went to that meeting and he came home with the knowledge that Pocketbooks was no longer the only publishing house that was allowed to do Star Trek fiction. There was some licensing change going on. And CrossCult thought, maybe we can try to do a special book for the German readers, written by German authors for the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. And then CrossCult came to us because they knew us. They knew both Bernd and myself, of course. We have been working with them for a couple of years at that point. And they also knew that we were both novelists and had been uh, writing novels with each other as well as solo books for a couple of years. Uh, and they came to us and asked us if we had any ideas uh, what a German Star Trek novel could be. And over the course of the next weeks, one novel became three. And then we pitched the idea to CrossCult and CrossCult uh, greenlighted the trilogy as we uh, sketched it out. And then they started talking with Hollywood and with CBS licensing. And that's how we got the job. Excellent. Well, so this series focuses on the USS Prometheus, which of course was originally seen in the Voyager episode Message in a Bottle. And I'm curious what kind of led you guys to decide to build this series around that ship? And what was it that kind of drew you to that to begin with? Okay, the we picked the Prometheus for two reasons. Reason number one, it is a really cool ship. I mean, it, it leaves an impression on the viewer, although you, you can only see it really in one Voyager episode. Everybody knows that ship when they've seen that episode, and everybody remembers that ship. So we thought it would be a cool ship to use for a story. And then we checked, did the American authors of the Star Trek novels use it in any relevant way? And we were surprised to find that they didn't. And that was very important for us because we did not want to contradict anything that the American authors had written. As I said, we had been translating the American novels. We knew them, we liked them, and we didn't want to do our own thing. We wanted to do something that complemented their thing and that would be seamless for the reader that reads both our work as well as the American novels. So the Prometheus was an empty sheet of paper, so to speak, and we were able to use it and have our own kind of fun with it without contradicting the American colleagues. Yeah, and I noticed that you did have a vast knowledge of those other books because you referred to other series of books uh, in this one. So it fits very well into that Trek literary universe. We tried very hard to have exactly that happen, and I'm glad to hear that it worked, especially in the translation. Uh, yeah, we, that's exactly what we wanted to do. We didn't want to contradict anybody, and we wanted to find our own little space in the story that the Americans had been writing and have a little fun in there without stepping on 
anyone's toes. Now, just last week on our uh, previous episode, we had Keith R.A. DeCandido on, and it's our understanding oh, yeah. he helped to uh, edit or translate some of uh, these books. That's correct. We have a German uh, translator by the name of Helga Parmiter, who translated all three novels into English. And then uh, Keith came in and uh, polished the translation so that it would be proper American English. He worked on all three novels. I noticed there are a few uh, little references, um, kind of like Easter eggs to literary stuff as well. I, I believe there was an ensign or a lieutenant de Candido at some point in the book, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. We have a lot of those Easter eggs, especially for the German uh, readers or for German fandom. We have an admiral in the book uh, who's called Marcus Rode, which is the, the editor of the German Star Trek novel line <laughs> at CrossCult. We have uh, uh, Robert Vogel is name dropped. He is a very prominent figure in German Star Trek fandom. We have a captain uh, whose name is Mike Hillenbrand, which is a dear friend of us who is a small publishing company. He owns a small publishing company and is also a, a moderator at a lot of conventions and stuff. So there's a lot to discover, especially for uh, the German fandom. That's very cool. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the other crew. They're, the crew of the Prometheus, a few of them are familiar faces that we've seen in other series like uh, Mendon, for example. But there's also a lot of original characters. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about creating the crew of the Prometheus and maybe especially uh, the leading man of your series, Captain Richard Adams. Okay, happy to. Um, Captain Adams, we wanted to have a captain that was weary of war, that had been through a lot and that did not want to to go on in that direction, who had joined Starfleet for a very idealistic reason and had then been forced to do kind of work that contradicted that reason. And in, uh, in the case of Richard Adams, he had even lost his wife to those contradictions. His wife uh, was killed during a, a confrontation. And the Richard Adams that we have is an old war hero, you could say, who is who, who hates war, who does not want to go on. And uh, the other characters, we we wanted to have a mixture of known faces and original ones, and we wanted to have characters from all over the fifty years of Star Trek. Like I said. The Prometheus trilogy was written as a birthday gift for the 50th anniversary. So we tried to incorporate all iterations of Star Trek up to that point into the novel. So we have uh, characters who had been seen on Next Generation. We have James T. Kirk, of course. We have Ferengis. We have Quark. We have Deep Space Nine. We, we try to put something from all over the place in the novels. And the crew of the Prometheus is a small reflection of that. Well, and you also worked in uh, one crew member of the Prometheus that we saw on Voyager, too, uh, the EMH. Of course, yes. We needed the EMH because the, the, uh, the, the Doctor was the only character of Prometheus that we really saw on that Voyager episode, so we needed to use him, of course. <laughs> 
I always liked that character on there, so it was great to see him in here. So Yeah, it, it was easy to write him because uh, if you remember Andy Dick's performance, it, that was really something. It, it was memorable, and it was easy to write the character again because you knew exactly how he would talk. Yeah, and it's not like he's a prominent character throughout the books, but he does have uh, a, an importance to him as we get into this book and the third book for sure. Uh, So now with the purifying flame, so we have the Renau species and they have been responsible for attacks on the Federation and the Klingon empire. Now the cause of this aggression and the anger from the Renau is from the entity that we saw in the TOS episode, the day of the dove. And we also saw explored in the Q continuum trilogy. So tell us how you came about creating the Renau species and then one to keep the harmony of the spheres and, and the use of the entity uh, that is now referred to in this as the son of the ancient reds from the Renau. Both Bound and myself like Star Trek stories that work as uh, some kind of a parable that uh, hold up the mirror to modern times. And when we got the assignment that we could actually write the Prometheus trilogy, we were pretty sure that we wanted to do something contemporary with it, that we wanted to put modern day into a science fiction story. And the biggest problem that we saw at the time was terrorism. So we came up with that species, with Renau, as a threat that was self-made, you could say, that was in part created by the ignorance of the Federation and of Starfleet. And um, that was now a problem for them and a problem that they didn't understand and the problem that they were in urgent need of solving anyway because people were starting to die because of it. And that's where the idea for the Renau and the Purifying Flame came from. And we built into that the idea of the entity from the TOS episode. And we also knew, of course, the Q novels and we knew that we would have to reference them so we worked something out that would fit with all of that. Excellent. Well, like you, I'm a huge fan of stories that kind of have a resonance. And I really appreciated, you know, kind of tackling this issue and looking at it in a very nuanced way. One thing that jumped out to me, especially with this book, is the bringing in the idea of refugees from the Renau who are the innocents that have, you know, nothing to do with this violence and, you know, get painted with kind of the same brush by a lot of people. I really appreciated that there was kind of that that nuance that was explored here as well. That was a hard topic to write because it is not what Star Trek is, right? It is not what a Federation member usually says or even thinks. It's not tolerant. And Gene Roddenberry's characters are tolerant. That's what defines them the most, I guess. And we needed to have them say bad things about the refugees in order for the story or for the parable to work. So we we had to walk a very thin line here to make it still believable, but also recognizable as a parable of modern times. Well, I definitely think, yeah, it's something that, that works because, you know, a story I don't think is really relevant unless it really 
is meaningful to the readers. And I think you definitely succeeded in that part. I'm happy to hear it. Thank you. And specifically, I really liked, uh, and I think he's just introduced in this novel. I don't think he's in the previous novels, but there's a character by the name of Brossel, I want to say. Well, he is kind of in this novel he's dealing with, uh, he's kind of just a regular renowned citizen who's noticing around him the change in the society. Yeah. 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 And there's the radicalization of his son and the death of his wife and that sort of thing. And I was wondering yeah. kind of the, the genesis of that story and, and how you came up with that character. Basically, by watching the news, frankly, uh, we, we, we tried to make the characters three-dimensional, especially the so-called antagonists. And at the end of the book, you will see that the Renau are victims as well. Uh, but we tried to make them believable and to give the reader their experience as well to make them see the other side and that the enemy is in fact not an enemy, but somebody just with different experiences and a very different kind of reasoning for what they're doing. And that character, for example, was a good way to illustrate that on in the shape of an, of an every man, if you will. Uh, and you see his, his plight and his, his way of life as well as the catastrophes of his existence. I feel like it's there's dealing with a lot of pressures and issues that kind of we're feeling all over the world right now. This part of the story really resonated for me, um, you know, maybe even on a smaller scale, like just going on Facebook or social media and seeing friends who, you know, you think, you know, and, and have a certain worldview and then, you know, they're posting, you know, things that are very hateful and really distressing to read. And you kind of see that sort of thing happening around you. So I totally, yeah, I really understand, like, just watching the news can kind of fuel that sort of uh, idea and wanting to put that in a Star Trek novel. Absolutely. And what you just described is the same over here. It's just like that in Germany as well. Well, one of the other things I found interesting in the book is the IKS Bordis. And we're so used to seeing on Klingon ships a bunch of Klingons. And in this one, we actually have Raspin, who is a rental with white skin and black eyes. And so to see the species on this Klingon ship be servant to the Klingons there. And he has a lot of character growth in the three books, and especially in the last one. He is then respected by the IKS Bordis captain, Krom. And I was just curious to know, um, how did you, why did you decide to put another species on a Klingon ship? Because that gives you a lot of room to play with something different. I think it's a very Star Trek-y thing to do. Every prominent Star Trek ship has at least the one outsider character who is part of the group, but also not really part of the crew. I am thinking of maybe Mr. Spock in the original series, and then you have Worf or Data or Odo or all those outsider characters that are there to comment on human nature from the outside, if you will. And I thought, or Band and I thought, that it would be interesting to have the same experience on a Klingon ship. And Considering that the Klingons always are aggressive and loudmouthed and very sure of themselves, 
it was interesting to have a character who is not all of that, who is not that at all. And that's how we came up with, with Raspin. I really like that kind of exploration of that. And especially through the Klingons, it feels like a, kind of a continuation of that theme of, you know, how we treat people who are different than us and, and outsiders. And especially through the eyes of an alien race, not just the Federation crew that we usually see, lent kind of a really interesting take on that. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that it worked for you. That's pretty much uh, the best thing that we imagined. Yes. Well, I can speak for Dan. It worked for both of us. We really enjoy <laughs> these books. So, yeah, I, I I agree. It's it's great. I like your explanation about you know the outside character being on the ship, the Spock of the Enterprise or the Wharf or or whatever. It makes so much sense to do that on a Klingon ship, and it gives you so much opportunity to explore something different on that ship and have this weak character. He reminded me in some ways of Gollum from Lord of the Rings mm. since he's white and black eyes and servient. And I don't know if that had any inspiration on this character for you or not. If you want the God honest truth, the uh, real inspiration for the character, at least for his outward appearance was Blue Man Group. Oh, <laughs> that's oh. where the, the idea for the optical side of the character came from. We looked at pictures of Blue Man Group <laughs> and tried to change the color as well as the physical build. And that's how the first image of the character came about. Wow. <laughs> Excellent. I can still see that. Very now. cool. <laughs> yeah. That's great. <laughs> and and we also have scenes in the book, I think in book three, where we have both of those outsider characters that I just mentioned. We have actually Spock and him interacting. And that was done on purpose to put those two outside characters in the same room. Well, now legend has it that there's this white guardian that has imprisoned the son of the ancient reds for thousands of years. And what we find in the book then is the crew of the Prometheus, along with Spock, as you mentioned, they seek out the white guardian entity because he's, they want to contain the son of the ancient reds from causing all this violence and stuff. And what they find is an entity that is part of the, the old ones. Could you tell us a little bit more about the old ones and, and how you envision these beings and what they are? Well, they are energy. They are forces, if, if, if you will. They are a big problem for the crew because they are hard to understand. And that, again, is, I think, a very Star Trek-y theme, to be confronted with something that you do not know, but also not think of it as a danger, as an aggressor but just as something that you don't understand yet. And then you have to try to, to get to the, to the core of them to see what they're about. And uh, yeah, we, we try to have interesting characters. Uh, I, I hope uh, we manage to do that. And we also try to be true to uh, the Trek lore that was there before. Like you mentioned, we have the energy being from, from TOS, which leads into all of that. I also really enjoy uh, the character of, I'm, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this correctly, Jasset Aknamur, the Renau character. Perfect, yes. Oh, perfect. Um, yeah, and he's a Renau that's serving on board the Prometheus. And kind of throughout this story, he's, like through all three books, you know, the Renau are the, the kind of public face of 
what's been happening in these terrorist attacks. And he's kind of been bearing the brunt of that. And we, of course, find out mostly it's due to the influence of this entity. And that's why people are getting kind of heated and, uh, you know, taking it out on him. But there's also just that little bit of, you know, bigotry that kind of seems to lurk in the brains of humans, no matter what era they're from. And I really found his role in this book really great because in the previous books, he's kind of their contact between the Renau and the Federation. But in this book, he really takes uh, center stage in convincing the old ones of the compassionate thing to do. Uh, what was your experience kind of writing that character and and planning his arc over the course of the three novels? Well, with Yassad, we wanted to have the noble outsider. We wanted to have somebody who was native to the the, the area that we had to go through, the, the, the Lembata cluster, and who is also not really part of the Federation because he always feels a bit outside, although he clearly belongs on board the Prometheus. Um, and with the Renau threat coming up, he is now the subject of a lot of intolerance and a lot of bigotry and, and, and racial hatred. And he takes all that upon himself and still manages to stand up for his friends in the end and to to make that sacrifice for the people that have humiliated him before and that have tried to to see this enemy in him that he clearly is not and that his people also are not if you if you see them for who they really are without uh, any negative influences from the outside and Yassad is uh, an example of that, of the good nature of the Renau. And he is the one who is finally able to save both uh, his chosen family, the Prometheus, as well as his actually his, his actual people, the Renau. Great. Uh, yeah, and I, I so enjoyed that character. And he was such a great link between our Prometheus crew and the Renau, and so I really enjoyed his character in here. And thankfully, uh, and you know, we've kind of gotten into spoilers, which our listeners are used to here at this point. But <laughs> I'm just glad he lives on. <laughs> so maybe we'll see him he again does. someday. He does. We 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 had a, a long discussion about exactly that, whether or not he should live or die in the end. And we changed it a couple of times actually before we went to print. And so in the end, he does live. And I'm, I'm quite happy that we did that. Yeah, I was I was I have to admit, I was a little worried for his character there for sure towards the end. So I'm I'm happy that he lived on as well, because I kind of liked how he left things. You know, I feel like a typical Star Trek trope might be he rejoins his people and, and that sort of thing. But I like that he is kind of remaining true to. Uh, his desires and wishes, and that is to go out and explore the galaxy and stay with the Prometheus and, you know, represent his people um, out in the universe. I thought that was a really cool story for him. Exactly. He is a bridge, right? He is a bridge between the Federation or Starfleet and his people. And if he were to go back into his home, and this bridge would no longer really exist. You need him on a Federation ship in order to have that bridge. And that's what he wants to do. He, he has chosen this family. He has chosen Prometheus as his 
place of, of, of work as where he lives. And those people are his friends, and that's where he wants to be. Well, that's great. I mean, we've really enjoyed these books. I'm just curious to also know, uh, they've been out for a while in Germany. What kind of reception have you had there locally? Oh, uh, the the books have been really re- well received, I'm happy to say, especially over here in, in, in Germany. The minute they came out, uh, the readers were really eager to see what was happening. And they were published in Germany over the course of three months. So there was a new book every four weeks for the whole summer of, I think, 2016 was when it happened. So the German readers were quite fast at reading them. And after that, uh, there were audiobooks published by Luba Audio over here, uh, the complete novels read by, by, by an actor. And those are uh, in existence as well. And you can have the, the paperbacks as well as the audiobooks. Excellent. Well, I know that, uh, you know, we hear a lot about CrossCult and their publishing efforts in, in Germany. And I think mostly where we see it over here is the releases of the gorgeous covers that they do for the, the yeah. novels. Um, and I, it's just, it's really good to know that, you know, Star Trek publishing is alive and well in places other than, you know, just the English speaking world. And, I'm wondering if there's any kind of plans for something like this again in the future. For another uh, experiment like the Prometheus books, like uh, for, for novels written by, by Germans? Yeah, exactly. And another um, novel originally uh, written in German. Of course, it could be done. Uh, it's all a question about licensing and about paying the right license fees, but... It is a very, very, very expensive thing to do. That's why I I don't really think that it would happen another time. Um, When a publisher commissions a book, he has to pay the author. When a publisher commissions a licensed tie-in, he has to pay the author as well as the license owner. And if that tie-in is written in a different language than the one that the tie-in owner is speaking, the publisher also has to pay a translator so that the license owner can read the book. That's three items on your list where usually there's just one item. And that's what makes it really expensive. And you need to sell a lot of books in order to make a profit with a project like that. Prometheus has made a profit, that's for sure. But it took a longer while than a normal text would take for a profit, which, of course, is logical. And I know that CrossCult wanted to have Prometheus as a 50th anniversary gift for Star Trek fans, and it was done as a special event and a special occasion. Um, So far, there have not been any real talks about doing it again, should the interest uh, be there and should the call come in, both Bernd and myself would be happy to be on board again. I know that. we have Bernd and myself, we have spoken about it. But it's not our decision to make, and uh, the money is the important thing here. Okay, so I'm making a note for me and Dan to call Cross Cults <laughs> and demand another book. <laughs> I'm sure. 
sure they would love to do it, but uh, the numbers need to be right, and it is really important, uh, uh, really expensive to do. I have full understanding if it's something that uh, if it's a decision that they do not make lightly. I wouldn't as well. Well, given all those factors, I got to say, like, I'm, I'm really thankful that this project was able to go forward, uh, both, you know, for your sake and the German reader's sake and, you know, for our sake to be able to get the translated version as well and have new Star Trek stories from a different perspective, I think is really special. And I think you guys should be really proud of what you've accomplished here. Oh, thank you for saying that. And and I agree. I'm I'm really thrilled with the fact that the books are out in English now. And uh, I can say for a fact that the contact with Titan Books has been excellent, as well as with Big Finish. Um, the the English audiobooks are, I think, stellar. I really really liked them and. I like them even more than I like the German ones, but do not tell anybody <laughs> I said that. And um, it's 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 a blast. I'm, I'm, we're having a really good time with the project here, and to see that it's still alive after three years now almost, and that there are still people talking about them, especially people from the other side of the globe, uh, it's, it's, it's a thrill. It's really, really great. Great. Well, what other projects do you have going on and also that Bound maybe have uh, going on at this time? Oh, Bound and myself uh, are both writing novels all the time. Sometimes we write them together. We have written a couple of children's book series together uh, that were published here in Germany, and we are working on new ones as well. Uh, right now, I am writing a science fiction novel that will be published in autumn of 2019 over here in Germany. It's not a licensed work. It's my own universe. Uh, Bound is working on a couple of, of, of fantasy novel projects as well as on some uh, translations. We're both writing comic books uh, uh, quite often in, in, in recent years. Uh, and we try to be busy. I do a lot of uh, book tours when, when something new comes out. I tour all over Germany and read. And of course, there's next year's convention season to plan, which is something that I'm also working on right now, uh, presenting my panels for the conventions and see what, what, what I can bring to the table. Excellent. And uh, for our listeners, a few of whom I do know are in Germany, um, is there anywhere online that they can follow uh, your guys' projects and what, you're, what you guys are up to? Of course. Both Bant and myself have websites uh, that bear our name, and we can also be found on Facebook, and I think Bant even has an Instagram. So if you Google our names, that's Christian Humberg for me and Bernd Perplis for my esteemed co-author. I, I think you will find uh, us online, uh, our websites, our social media. It's all there. And I'm afraid to say it's all in German. But uh, if you're interested, uh, feel free to visit us. Well, we always have Google Translate, so that helps, too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, we really enjoy these books, seriously, and we do hope that something works out where you can write more, and uh, we want to thank you so much for the books and so much for joining us, and also tell Bount that we say hi. And uh, I will. Hope, uh, hope we get to talk to you again sometime soon. 
I would love that, and thank you for your kind words. Uh, I'm I'm really happy that you like the books. This is it's great. I I mean it. It's really great. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. My pleasure at all. My pleasure. So I think out of all of the author interviews we've done in the past, that one was pretty unique. And I know you can't have gradations of unique. Things are either unique or they aren't. So, and you know, the English teacher in me is just kind of bristling at what I just said. But I think this is really cool. You know, the first book trilogy not originally published in English in Star Trek and officially licensed at that. Like, this is a pretty cool thing, I think, in the whole history of Star Trek books. When these books originally came out in Germany, I was a little upset because I was like, oh, no, there's going to be three Star Trek novels out there that I can't read because they're in German. And I kept I was thinking, like, yeah, maybe I can get like some kind of translation software that I can download, download like an ebook or something like I really wanted to read these books. I was really curious to know. So I was thrilled when the English versions came out. So that that was awesome. definitely, you know, it's it's. I think as Star Trek fans, we're completists, right? We want to read every novel out there. And even though we're not really close to having done that with even just the English speaking ones, knowing that there are three out there that you might possibly not get to read because you just don't have the required language skills to do it. That was a little worrisome. So it was, I was really happy when they announced that as well. And then we got this trilogy, which is finally done and, I don't know. I enjoyed the hell out of it. So <laughs> it was so good. And I was, I've always was surprised how much it referred to things in the lit verse too. So yeah. that connection was great. Even though it wasn't the same publisher, uh, pocketbooks and stuff that does, that does, um, the lit verse stuff that we're used to. So yeah, that connection was there. So it's, but it's been a lot of fun talking about unique things today, but it's not the only thing we've been discussing here on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.fm, Literary Treks. I just want to sing. After every time I hear the title of this book, I want to sing, A Time for War, A Time for Peace. <laughs> funny, funny story. When when this was being pitched at the sales con in a sales meeting uh, at Simon and Schuster, somebody on the sales force was was worried that we that they'd have to get permission to use the titles. Cause, cause it's a song by the birds, and 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 John Ordover, the editor, had to gently point out that it was actually from the Bible, and therefore kind of <laughs> melodic tricks. You know, I suppose as being an actor, you know, I just was really kind of feeling into Clive's character, okay. and and trying to express the emotion of what I felt like he was going through on the Sarangi. Mm-hmm. So then it became much more of a personal individual character it was how I experienced doing it. The 602 Club. But I look at this film as being almost three, maybe four different films because when we're in Krypton, Krypton, it's very sci-fi. Oh, you mean uh, excuse Krypton. me, Krypton. You, yeah, you mean we're, Krypton. We're Krypton. I'm yeah. sorry, Marla. Krypton. Krypton. Yes. <laughs> so when we're on Krypton, <laughs> Krypton, uh, it's very much a science fiction movie. Next thing, all of a sudden, we have Kal-El come to Earth, and now it feels very Norman Rockwell. I mean, it's almost like, I mean, totally different from what we just saw on Krypton or Krypton. To the journey! Brace for impact. Brace for impact, <laughs> yes. Okay, if, uh, 
I, I, I'm going to make a commitment to myself right now. If I am ever perishing in a plane crash, I am going to say brace for impact right before I die to everyone on the plane. I will brace somehow for impact. hear it across the miles. It'll be very dramatic, you know, with some dramatic theme music playing, hopefully, just like we have in Voyager here this episode. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And if you have the chance, we'd love it if you leave us a star rating and written review as well. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd like to help us keep our shows coming to you each and every week, you can become a patron on the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join the larger conversation is the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. We'll have a dedicated thread to this episode, and if you want to comment on that, we will read your comments in the next episode, possibly. Uh, if you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that'll come right to us. And you can also find the network on Twitter, we're at trek.fm, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Find us on our Goodreads group where we have a bookshelf with all of our previously covered books, as well as the, the currently reading section, so you know what's coming up on future shows. Plus, there's great conversations happening about the books and the comics, so just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. And we'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandis Shea Mutala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and for being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, Dan, when you're not a vessel for some old one's energy and shooting at the sun of the ancient reds, where can people find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. Uh, you can find me on YouTube.com slash Productions, where I make videos about Star Trek. And my Treklet Reviews website at www.treklet.com, where I review Star Trek novels, both old and new. And of course, you can find me in the Babel Conference. And Bruce, when you're not taking command of one of the battle bridges because the ship you're on has entered multi-vector assault mode, where can we find you? Well, you can take me seriously afterwards on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And you can find me doing Live from the Edge with Brandy Jackala, where we review Star Trek Discovery as they come on. And it's a live show that happens on YouTube after each Discovery episode, usually the night after, but if it's short treks, it's the night of. And you can find me on the podcast called The Star Wars Report, talking about Star Wars. And of course, I'm always in the Babel Conference. So thanks everyone for listening. And until next time, live long 
and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one. 